Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Claire Detterer. Claire is the author of two critically acclaimed memoirs. Her first book, Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses, which was a New York Times bestseller, has been translated into 11 languages, optioned for television by Warner Brothers, and adapted for the stage. Her most recent memoir is Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. It's a fantastic book, and it framed our conversation. It's the kind of book where, when you read it, you feel like you know her, and that's kind of how I walked into the conversation. It's, it was a great time talking with her, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Claire Denner. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I have been to Seattle once. I really liked it. And I would, uh, your writing uh, makes me want to go there more. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, it's a sort of a background character in your latest book, Love and oh, Trouble. I love hearing I love hearing that. That's why I'm always trying to bring place forward in my writing. It's sort of like in, in Crimes and Misdemeanors, how it, it, New York is like a character in the film. Lots of Woody Allen's films. Like New York is like a, a character supporting character in the film. Yeah, I feel like that's something that's actually a mission of mine is that there's, you know, we New York is the cultural capital, you know, and there's a way that that's often coming forward as a character in films and novels. And I'm really, in, one of my goals as a writer is what would happen if I treated Seattle or where I live as if it were as famous as New York? Just assume everybody knows what this place or that place is, like the way we know what Central Park West is or the village, right? So there's this way that I'm always trying to elevate Seattle into this mythical place in a sort of almost perverse way. And all the good new sci-fi serial dramas on you know, on sci-fi or showcase, the capital of the world is Vancouver. Like, oh, yeah. everyone's like, <laughs> it's, 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 they're great. Like, uh, uh, continuing all these, they're so great, but you're like, wow, we're supposed to believe Vancouver is where, yeah, but uh, <laughs> it's Yeah, it's true. Well, it's pretty great there. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it's the uh, shape of things to come. Exactly. So, I, confession, until a couple weeks ago, I had not discovered your writing, and I'm sad to say that because I discovered you through this Paris Review piece you wrote, um, what we do with what do, what do we do with the art of, of monstrous men? And then at, kind of wrote to uh, your publisher and asked for your most recent memoir. And it, wow, I it, I didn't realize how much they would connect. <laughs> when I did that. So I mean, this is so this essay. I, I want to talk about your book in a minute, but I just want to spend a few minutes talking about that essay because in it you talk about your love for Woody Allen and in the book you've written about Roman Polanski and you just talk about what do we do with artists who behave badly uh, and, and what's our relationship to their art now that we know like it's like the Wizard of Oz you know the 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 curtain's been pulled back and they're not just this little man they're a, a dirty perverse little man yeah I think right <laughs> yeah um, a hateful little man um I think that the question, you know, it has to do with what do we, what do we do with the art sounds intentional I, and the way that the, the question is put sounds like we're going to make decisions about it. And, and that's part of the process, but I'm actually more interested in sort of how do we feel about it and what happens when we watch it. Really, the question I'm thinking about is when somebody's life or biography 
disrupts our viewing or our listening or our reading, you know, sort of what's happening there. If I'm watching Manhattan versus Annie Hall after knowing what I know about Woody and Sunyi, is it changing the work? Is it changing me? Am I able even to take it in, take in the work in a kind of um, pure, unadulterated way? And there's a lot of people who say, yes, you can take it in, you know, that the the life story and the work can be completely separated. And almost inevitably, those people are men, which is funny. The response is often really gendered. Um, but I think that's more of an ideal, the idea of separating the biography and the work. I think it's a, it's a, it's a sort of pure, it's an ideal. It's something you're trying to do, but it's not necessarily what's happening for a lot of people. For a lot of people, that disruption or or changing of the work itself just happens. It's not a decision we're making. It's just Manhattan doesn't look the same after we know about Woody and Sunyi. It just doesn't. And so to say it, they ought to be separate seems really facile. Like they, you know, the biography and, and the work, the, the fact is the work is terminally disrupted by these acts. When we, and it's not just by horrible acts, you know, there's a whole generation of scholarship on Sylvia Plath and how her work is disrupted by what we know of her suicide and whether it ought to be, right? So it's it's any kind of biographical action. Yeah, and do you think there's also this, because you can't quite fuse them. I mean, Nietzsche says all philosophy, right, is nothing but the personal confession of the philosopher. And there's something true in that, but also... Oh, I love that. Yeah, the confession is different than the philosopher, or the film is not its creator. I mean, this it's weird because it seems like you, you've got on one hand people that want to make this neat, clean separation of artist and art form, and and, and yet there's others that want to equate the two. Like, well, exactly because Polanski went on to this. Well, then these things that we're just looking at them and these acts, and it seems and that it, your piece seems to say that's not quite it either. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's. Um, that's the other extreme. And, and, and when I published this piece, I knew I was going to kind of get it from both sides. Because in the piece, I say, I still watch Polanski films. I still watch Woody Allen films. I'm sure, I mean, I don't know if I could watch The Cosby Show, but um, I'm sure I'll try. Uh, but in the case of Polanski and Woody Allen, I'm consuming that art because it's really important to me. I still listen to Wagner. You know, I, I have, I read Ezra Pound, these things. I'm not willing to give up great work because we know awful things about the artist. And so I'm really coming at it from that point of view of, no, I'm, I'm not going to deprive myself of this work because of the biography, but I'm also not going to pretend it isn't disrupted by what I know about what they've done. Um, so that's, I think that is ultimately a really person to person, uh, choice and that place, that sort of wavering line of what's, what's tolerable or what's still watchable or what's still consumable, you know, that's a, it moves for each person and it is different for each person. And I think the thing that really I thought about a lot in writing the piece was, I had been working on it for a while, um, thinking about this problem. And I realized that one of the things that's going on is, and I talk about in the, in the article, is that there's this way in which we tell ourselves we're having ethical thoughts, you know, about, oh, what Woody Allen did is wrong. Therefore, I'm not going to watch his movies. But what we're really having are sort of these 
um, inchoate, complex, weird moral feelings. So we're sort of being driven by moral feelings, like these just emotions, this responsive, like, oh, I loved Woody Allen. And now it turns out, you know, he's awful. That's just a feeling. That's not really a thought. And then we're putting this sort of logic of ethical thought on top of the feeling. And I feel like this is part of our whole political discourse now. We're all going around like these roiling, feelingful ids trying to put these ethical thoughts on top of something that's more complicated. It's funny. I, a guy, who, Alan Jacobs, who teaches at Baylor and teaches English literature, um, wrote this book, How to Think, a guide, a survival guide for a world at odds. And he has a whole chapter on repugnancies. And he's huh. like, he basically just says, if you're going to be, if you're going to think better, list your repugnancies so that you know them. So like, so that when you're feeling exactly, he's talking about exactly what you're talking about. So that when you're having these emotional things that you, and he's not saying they're invalid, it just might not right. be the final place you come out. Or you might have to think more carefully or do some like unpacking, you know, of things like Rachel Maddow does. Stephen Colbert said, you're like that person that takes a carburetor apart on her front lawn and how to, you know, like, you know, but maybe yeah. you have to take the carburetor apart emotionally so that you can come to a, a reflective ass assessment of where you're at. And don't you think that there's a way in which one of the things that's been really um, exhausting about this past few months is that we're all caught in the grip of this sort of um, massive repugnancy, yeah. you know, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, it's just agreeing. Yeah, totally. I, I, and so it's this very strong emotional response and it's, it's apt. It's time to have that response. There's nothing wrong with having that response. But the problem is when we start to have, when we start to make ethical mandates on top of that and tell everyone else how they ought to um, behave in terms of consuming art or, you know, basically in terms of consuming art, since that's what I'm thinking about. Um, and I'm all, you know, I'm really all for us acknowledging that this behavior is repugnant and feeling it, but it is a, it, there is a feelingful aspect that's different than making ethical decisions for sure. The other thing is that it's like, okay, so you're thinking about your own repugnancies and what sort of makes your stomach royal. But I also think the other thing that happens when we're constantly demonizing the other is that it is often a faint away from, uh, you know, a, a pointing away from the self, Right. And so it's like, look at that monster over there. Well, well, what's monstrous about me and why am I putting it off on that other person? You, you end the piece beautifully. You say this question remains, what is to be done about monsters? Can and should we love their work? Are all ambitious artists monsters? And then you say, tiny voice, parentheses, <laughs> am I a monster? And uh, someone named Abby Farson Pratt, who actually, I don't know, but she's a contributor to uh, an organization that I do some writing for and stuff. She, she says this uh, about, she mentions your, your essay kind of frames a piece she wrote on the topic. And she says, uh, the ickiness never totally goes away watching like Manhattan or, you know, looking at a Kevin Spacey. This alas is our human condition. The ickiness never totally goes away. Most of the time we smash things up and burn down bridges we make the wrong choice. We set fire to our relationships. We wallow. We wreck the lives of innocence. But sometimes with God's grace, we can do or make something beautiful. We're all monsters, but there are moments when the light of divine goodness passes through our creations. Something beautiful and lasting and transcendent occurs, even though it originated from sinful hands. The fact that bad people can make good art is evidence of our creator, the one who is always working through us in spite of us. Wow. 
That's fascinating. I mean, that's really, um, I guess the question is, do you, what the question I sort of, um, look at, at the end of the piece is, do you have to be a little bit monstrous in order to make something great? And that's the piece I'm playing with at the end that in order to channel that, um, that what she's calling, um, some kind of divine light, or I would call genius or whatever that you, you need to behave in a way that is somewhat monstrous. You need to be selfish. You need to shut the door against your children. You need to, you know, um, let appointments go unmet. You need to not take as good care of your parents. You need to just not be as available to the people in your world. And I start to think about this idea of whether or not I'm monstrous enough in that way. And if I haven't written a great work, is it because I'm not selfish enough? And I think it's a, or am I, have I only written something decent because I am so selfish? And it's a really, um, it's an important question, not just for humanity. I mean, not, it's an important question on a human level, but it is a gendered question. And it's really a mother's question of, um, what am I willing to give up in order to make the work? Is my motherhood affecting the quality of my work? You know, we talk a lot about how work pulls us away from our motherhood, but we don't talk a lot about how, oh gosh, maybe, you know, being a mom and trying to be a good mom is disrupting my ability to make great work. And I end the piece really trying to talk about this idea that when women do the things they need to do to finish the work, to make work and finish it, they have to be selfish in order to do that. And there was some pushback on the piece because basically what I did at the end was equate me going into my office and finishing writing an essay to, you know, Roman Polanski raping a child, right? (laughs) Like if we're both monsters. But what, and I know that that conflation is really dangerous. And there were a lot of people on the left or a lot of um, a certain kind of um, feminist who really took exception to that equation. But what I was trying to get at, and I said in the piece, was this idea that for women, we feel accused in that way when, you know, that, that it's no, very... I, I never hear people say, how is fatherhood mess with my work? I mean, it's just not... You, you, maybe in some weird circles you hear that, but it's just not... <laughs> just not, it's just not No, it's, it's completely not... Yeah. not Right. Whereas women are riven with that question all the time. They, they receive it from outside and it's asked all the time internally. And so this feeling of um, being a monster for doing and finishing the work is something that does disrupt women's ability to get stuff done. Right. So that's why I sort of did this thing where I almost barbelled those two extremes of a woman going into a room and finishing a piece of writing and, you know, the various monsters that I um, enumerate at the top of the essay from Cosby to Polanski to Allen to on and on and on to Picasso. Yeah. Um, I mean, isn't doing art too, even aside from the life choices and putting like the sense of ego you have to have that my yeah. voice matters. You know, you hear people say, Oh, what do I have to say? And, and when people say that you have a genuine, like there's something admirable about the humility of some uh, saying, Hey, my voice, you know, we're, but then, what makes a good artist is somebody saying, no, my voice is different. That my, something that's in me ought to be looked at, reflected on, criticized in the highest sense of the word, in the sense of like, you know, this is teaching us something of the human condition and, and what's the true, the good and the beautiful is. And, and, and it takes some kind of ego to do that, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely uh, list that as one of the forms of monstrousness needed to um, to make art. And and the idea I really hit on in the piece is that it's not just making the art; it's finishing the art. You know, I sort of deal with this idea that all finishers are monsters. A lot of us, you know, go through life making stuff, but there's a certain savagery required to complete the art and put it in the world. And one of the selfishnesses that I list or one of the monstrosities I list as part of that um, kind of profile needed to do the work is this idea that you have to believe in the, yeah, in the importance of your voice or of your work. And that not only that, but that, that, that the ideas you have and the, that what you have to share belongs to this anonymous abstract idea of the audience rather than to your family or the people you care about who are close to you. That's a really, you know, giving the best of yourself to the anonymous reader is a, is also a kind of can bizarrely be perceived as a kind of selfishness. So as I said before, I, I had read this essay a few times before I had, I had read um, love and trouble, which I want to say as a, just a fantastic book. It's, it's so interesting to you because I think you know, writing a memoir, a second memoir, I, I would imagine is incredibly challenging because yeah. your first memoir, memoir, Yoga Poses, has been translated into 12 languages. Yes. And one, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, I think, or somebody, or is, who is that? Who's the critic that uh, Elizabeth, yeah, Gilbert says that it's the book we all need to read. So at what point do you feel like are you, is the danger like, uh, I'm remaking a film and what if they hate it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, your story is already told now. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's sort of a practical problem right up at top, which is how, what do you put in? And I mean, which is a question for every single memoir ever, ever written. What do you put in and what do you leave out? But how much do you assume your reader knows from the previous book. And of course you can't assume people have read the previous book, but it feels really weird to retread old material. So a second memoir, just practically speaking, is a very, very strange project and not one anybody ever wants to write, but lots of people do. You know, it wasn't sort of my first thought when I finished Poser to go ahead and like, oh, I'll do that again. You know, it's hard work writing a memoir and it's really hard work publishing a memoir. It wasn't something I necessarily wanted to rush back into. Do you know the 12 languages it was translated into? Oh, gosh. I could, I could probably list them. I'm Aww. so fascinated by that. Like, what, I'm thinking who, you know, who, like, that's, uh, like yeah. I, know, I know, like, there's a lot of Bibles translated into Portuguese because of Brazil. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just it's saying, Brazil, it's, it's Portuguese. Portuguese sure. There you go. I mean, yeah, so that's very, it's just that. Yeah, that. Brazil's a big market. It's really interesting for, for literature. You don't think of it that way, but yes, Portuguese. So it's interesting because you go through, like, journals i mean the structure of the book at every chapter you have like a time in your life right like earlier in life and then that frames it Mm -hmm. and in some ways like it's it seems like you have on one level right you're telling the story of your younger self on another level right your younger self is speaking to you in some ways i mean there's an inter it seems like there's an interpretive kind of back and forth yeah i think that um I mentioned that I didn't want to write another memoir. And this book actually started out, it was going to be a, a long critical study of Roman Polanski. Um, 
So <laughs> that, sh- that just sounds so great. <laughs> that, I know. That's destined to become a, mu- a musical, the long <laughs> critical study of Roman Polanski. No, taking the stage after my- Hamilton. <laughs> It's still my dream book to write, actually. I think he's just fascinating. But I I was really fascinated with the story of um, just his life story is so complicated and rich. And I started writing that book um, and my agent was actually really interested in it. I thought, oh, this is great. I wrote a memoir and I, you know, and it was so personal and hard. And now I'm going to write about Polanski and I never have to write about myself again. And I started writing on the, um, I started writing on him and I realized I wasn't so much interested in him as I was interested in his rape of 13 year old Samantha Gailey, um, in 19, oh, I'm going to screw up the date. I think it was 77, 77, 78. And, um, I started writing on the rape a lot and how I felt like it was this really important moment in the 19, you know, sort of the sexually predatory 1970s. And I call it the ultimate of the 1970s of little girls, right? Like it's, she, there was, it was this moment of sexual freedom and uh, the sexualization of little girls and a moment of parents not paying attention and sort of checking out. And Samantha Gailey's rape is very much a product of that moment. And then as I was writing on that, this is the really long version, I realized that I wasn't so much interested in the Samantha Gailey story as I was interested in my own story of growing up in that culture, which was very, I grew up in kind of a very non-traditional family, not a lot of parental supervision, lots of weirdos coming and going, lots of drugs around, you know, and had, and was sexually predated when I was young. And so I started realizing I wanted to write about that time and how that led into my own sort of hypersexualized adolescence um, in the 1980s. And I became, because I know that's a story a lot of women went through growing up in that era and then sort of um, having kind of a, a slutty adolescence in the 80s and not knowing, you know, trying to figure out how that related to having grown up in this era of permissiveness that their parents set up really in a way. And so I was writing and is this, is this, am I going on too long? No, this this is fantastic. Okay. So I was writing on that and I was sort of writing a coming of age memoir about all of that. And the only problem is that like, I hate coming of age memoir, like as a reader, not a fan. I always, I'm the person who always wants to skip ahead till the person's a grown up. But nonetheless, I was super compelled to keep revisiting this. And I, I sort of started to wonder, why am I writing on this? Why, why, why? And, you know, why am, do I keep pursuing this? I mean, this is like two years into the project. I'd been writing on it for a long time. And I finally realized that it was because at the time I was about 45, in my 40s, a lot of the same um, feelings that I'd had when I was an adolescent of this kind of hypersexuality and this despair and this sadness and this sort of risk-taking behavior was starting to kind of get me in its grip again in my 40s. And I had thought I'd gotten over all that, you know, gotten married, had kids, you know, become a a very stable person. And yet in my 40s, it kind of came roaring out of the past and took me over again. And I had this moment of sort of doomed recognition that the girl that I had thought I'd moved past, the girl I'd been in adolescence was sort of still there. And so the book became this problem of bouncing between what I was experiencing in my mid forties, um, which was, you know, terrifying and depressing and bizarrely sexual, um, 
bouncing between that experience and trying to come to grips with what I'd gone through as a child and a young girl. So the book is really about the dynamic between these two times. And I'll tell you right now, that's a really hard way to write a book. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I imagine on the front end, it, it's hard. On the back end, it, and for the reader, the structure, I mean, it's fantastic. Oh, thank you. It's, it's something that's so engagement. And also, you, know, you point out that you were a tomboy. I mean, you weren't the kind of girly girl. In fact, your husband brought, bought you these... Um, this lingerie, right? That's for like a pair of expensive panties or something. You're like, oh my gosh, these are perfect. But who I would, I, I'm not the woman that wears these. I mean, like they're for a girl. Exactly. And I don't think of myself as a girl yet. But, but you point out that tomboys, like actually, the the move from tomboy to sluttiness is not as surprising as people think because the male attention drive that it changes, right? You know, like as you, as you mature as a woman, as you become a woman, like, okay, this is the way to get the male attention before it was kind of being like one of the boys. Now it's getting the boys that, exactly. that gets the male attention. Yeah. I think I had a really dark moment when I, the, the book was in a, in an early form and I had just finally written the whole thing and I was still trying to, I, to, define what the theme of the book was. And I gave it to my best reader, who is a woman named Suzanne Morrison, who actually also wrote a yoga memoir. And she read the book. She's a brilliant reader. And she said, oh, well, sweetie, I hate to tell you, but this is a book about the need for male approval. And I was like, oh, that. Oh, I was just like, it was so embarrassing. Um, But you know, as a second time memoirist, the great gift that you have is that you know that the stuff that feels most shameful and embarrassing is the stuff that's most generous to the reader. You know, that's sort of the moral charge of the memoir is I say something that's really difficult and true and you read it, the reader reads it and feels less alone and feels better. And really no other art form can kind of do that because of maybe songwriting, but because of the memoir's non-fictional charge. So when you read My Pain and it's non-fictional, then you're like, oh, this really happened to her and I feel a little better. So the thing about seeking male approval, like I was really embarrassed by it when it was pointed out to me, but it is what, it is really the thread through the book. And I think it's something that is very uncomfortable to talk about. Yes, as a little girl, I was a tomboy because I had an older brother I worshipped. I wanted all of his attention. I was a terrible tomboy. I wasn't even good at it. You know, I could never do any of the tomboy behaviors. I sucked at it and I was kind of chubby and I wasn't, you know, I was no Christy McNichol. You know, I was just this kind of loser kid who wanted to be like her brother. And then, right, then it just sort of, as I got older and got the trappings of sexual desirability, those were tools I could use to get to be around boys more. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. 
Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Steve Lipless, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. It's interesting when you're talking about what you can do for the reader, because you talk about towards the end of the book that you're at this cocktail party. I think this is like in your neighborhood and right. And and you're drinking bourbon and you're in the circular argument with this woman who thinks that like, Oh God, writers should take the reader um, more seriously. The readers needs more seriously. And you're like, I just think that's completely uh, insane. <laughs> you know, that that's exactly not what should be, because I think, do you know, um, Jack Kerouac's uh, Rules of Spontaneous Prose. No. It's just like Tell thir- me everything. They're just like 38 like tweets. I mean, they're shorter than tweets, most of them. Uh-huh. But it's like, I think it's after he wrote The Subterraneans, which was written like four days or something in Ginsburg. But how'd you do that? And he just like has, there's 38 of them, but I'll just, a couple of them that got me um, thinking about your book. Were, um, number four is be in love with your life. Um, oh. And then he says... Um, Number nine is the unspeakable visions of the individual. Uh, and he says, uh, number 14 is like Proust, be an old tea head of time. Oh, and then yeah. number 15 is, I think, the essence of what you're saying, right? Like telling the true story of the world in interior monologue. And the, the true is the important part there. And of course, it gets done in fiction. But there's something about the way memoir flags the truth that um, I think actually gives it a greater responsibility, um, you know, to say what is difficult. Because if memoir, which is ostensibly the truth, it's saying I am true, only says what's positive and great about your life, then you're just setting a bunch of readers on like a one-way trip to depression and despair because all humans compare themselves to one another. And if you're only sort of doing an advertisement for yourself, that's that's the least generous thing and the biggest abdication of your responsibility as a memoirist. But I love the thing that he said also about the um, something about the specific life. The oh, I think it was the third one you read, the individual life. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the other thing that's really interesting in terms of writing memoir is you can only really get at these universal feelings or truths if you write really specifically about your own life. And I teach a lot and my students are really uncomfortable with writing these specifics of their own life because they're worried that it's boring or self-indulgent or who knows, you know, that it's too specific to them. But the fact is, in some weird way, nobody really understands. There's like a physics to it. The most universal experience as a reader lies in those specific details that the writer gives about their life, you know, that might be completely different from the reader's life. You don't live on Bainbridge Island. You don't, you know, sort of, you don't do yoga. You don't, you know, you're not a middle-aged lady, but 
there's something about me presenting all those specifics that makes you able to enter the story. Yeah, the and universal I'm, comes through the particular. Exactly. And that seems so obvious, but when you're actually doing the writing of it, it can be very difficult to trust the particulars of your life because they just don't seem like enough. By the way, number two is submissive to everything, open, listening. And number three is try never to get drunk outside your own house. You talked about your students and you, you have this great piece. I feel like we're not going enough chronologically, so I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning of the book. But towards the end of the book, you tell the story where you're teaching a writing class to adults, like an adult ed kind of class. And this woman comes up to you and you describe her so well. She's got these like that terrible blade. She's a hospital administrator, right? And she's got like a, this blazer that's sort of like, it's just, it's not necessarily unfashionable, but it's just, it's, 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 it's from not the nice, cool hip section of Macy's or something. And this weird buttons, <laughs> like the, the country, like this is like, and she's a hospital executive. And she says, well, my husband, sex between my husband and I have been just kind of bleh, meh. And we decided to bring a third person. This is a middle age. I'm imagining her about 50, right? Or No, like, no, no. This or, lady's a little bit younger. She's okay, probably she, late 30s, I'd so say. I put her 50 in my mind just because of the, the outfit. But like, and she says, you know, we thought, I, I thought, let's bring another woman in. And so <laughs> I, I went even on. Even that to start with is right, just right. like. And then the next is better. So I went on Craigslist. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, of course. That's what you do. As one does. As one does. Uh, you know, I'm looking, I thought, you know, we need an ottoman and a third partner for the bedroom. So we'll just go. And <laughs> Sweetie, they're two miles apart. We can pick up the ottoman and right. then the lover. Or, <laughs> yeah, or, you know. Uh, I mean, people do this. And it's not to laugh at people who do this. People are trying to find freedom. And it's something that has a lot of um, beauty and sadness. And, like, we're laughing. But there's a lot of people out there trying to figure out their lives. But and, you are anyway. like her priest in that moment. I mean, she came to you as a confessional. <laughs> and you said, and she's like, what do I do? And, and you're well, like. Well, no, no. She said, we brought this woman into our marriage. And so she, oh, yeah, a, she fell in love with the woman, right? Like, they both fell in love with the woman. And now she says, what should I do? And this is in a chapter that dealt with, I had just written an essay, an article for The Atlantic that dealt with sex. And it was actually a book review. It wasn't like, you know, the most revealing article ever written. But if you sort of publish the word sex, all of a sudden, everybody starts telling you their secrets. And so it was a chapter about how all of these unexpected people from friends to acquaintances to the lady in the blazer in the writing class were coming up to me and just telling me these insane secrets. Um, and there was this, it was as if I tapped open this door into this whole other world that's going on around us all the time that I'd had no idea about. So yeah, she came up and asked me what to do. And you're like, write about it. Yeah. Was, <laughs> did she, I mean, did she write about it? I don't know. The class ended, <laughs> oh, she, oh, but she never wrote about it for me. I mean, it's very hard to write about sex. Yeah. FYI. <laughs> well, I also, I would think, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, you know, Amy Schumer says, you know, I'm a sex comic because I just tell some stories. But a guy can whip his penis out on the stage like, oh, he's brilliant and innovative. But if a woman talks right. about sex, that's what she is. I mean, I wonder, do you, because you, you talk very clearly in the book about, you know, you're not so much a tomboy anymore, but you also, you're not a girl's girl. You don't, you're not like you dress, you don't dress immodestly. And yet my, my guess would be a pitfall of writing explicitly about sex is you get sexualized, right? Yeah. Well, that was one of the things I was most fascinated by was the way that 
a man can write about sex, just as you said, and have it be one aspect of his writing. Even if you take Philip Roth or James Salter, you know, writers who are certainly, we think about sex at the forefront when we're thinking about all the universe of the things that they bring. Um, sex is just one thing, one aspect. And there is a way in which, first of all, women become defined by sex. If they, you know, Erica Jong has said she will forever be known as the woman who wrote, quote, that book because there's no way she can move past fear of flying um, because it was so sexual and that was so shocking when it was published. So there's that piece of it. But I also, um, I read a lot of nonfiction writing on sex um, when I was writing this book. I did a big, big uh, researched article uh, for The Atlantic on it. And I just, for my own interest, I started looking for it. And it was very hard to find any, for starters, any memoiristic or nonfiction writing on sex by women that was truly literary. It was just extremely difficult to find. And when I found it, it often had this quality of the writer sort of, there was, there was this sort of way in which you feel the writer is a, the writing itself is an attempt to instill desire in a male reader. And that really troubled me. I was really interested in that. Like, and An- Anais Nin is the ultimate example of that. She's performing sexuality as she's writing about it. And for me, in anything I'm writing about, even if it's honestly, even if it's a yoga pose, or even if it's making a cake with my two-year-old daughter, or whatever it is, the only thing that's interesting to me about it is to get, you know, is to delve down to the deepest level of lived experience. Not what do I want this to appear like, but what did this feel like? And when you're writing this performative sexuality that's meant to instill desire in a reader, you're doing the opposite of that. You're not going after what you felt or what it was like in the moment. You're just operating on the shallowest level. So that was something that fed all of the writing I did about sex in the book. Do you think, is there a desire to be like sexual? I mean, is there something about, inner conflict in you because this weird th- I mean because it seems like some of the th- a thread running through the book is 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 desire to be desired and it's sort of yeah. and, and and one a kind that felt like uh, you I mean your sex sexuality starts your first experience starts with something that was molestation um and then you, you write very adroitly about how this trip, but then I also had agency later in, in acts that were consensual and liked it and enjoyed it. And yet it seems like you didn't know uh, some things about yourself that you know now. And so you, in fact, you tell the story in the book, you're, I think in California or no, you're at a conference with a guy from California who you reviewed his book and he lights up when he sees you and i i'm reading it and it's i mean it's i emotionally i feel like i'm feeling everyone's emotions like my heart's like oh my gosh what's gonna happen what's gonna happen and he's kind of flirting with you and there's this sense in which i i sense this it feels good that he remembers me he takes me seriously as a critic and he didn't read your yoga or he did read your yoga book, but he said something douchey like, I thought lady book, but it wound up being pretty good. Oh, no, that's I mean, a different that's a different douchey dude who said that. But anyway, yeah. Oh, oh I was thinking because that's in the same. That, it's in the same chapter. Oh, it's in the yeah, same so chapter, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like on the same page. I, 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 I fuse them into one. I feel like I'm going to okay, let me, can I take that quote, uh, test again? Like, no, but it's on that <laughs> same page. I kind of fuse them. But like, 
and you, you you tell the story in a chapter like a kiss can ruin your life because you'd never committed any accident fidelity and this guy like the next day you're on like a book tour or something right and and or you guys were at a conference from this like at the work of this one poet or something and he starts Oh, I'll drive you to the conference. Oh, you can put your feet up on my dashboard. And this, <laughs> like, he's trying to do these sort of like, uh, you know, JV acts of seduction, but they are seductive. I mean, like, and uh-huh. you wind up kissing him and it it feels awful good. I mean, you talked about having, the, I had the good girl record. I'd never done anything like this. Now my, 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 my record is tarnished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes, I think that, like, and that is one thing that, going back to the writing piece of it, it's, I was trying to represent that intense desire to be desired that was so much a part of my adolescence and a part of my 40s. That's just like, oh, I just want to be wanted. You know, I, I think that that was something I was trying to represent and look at. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, the, that passage in that chapter, it's not just that it's about my record being tarnished. It also is the beginning of laying the groundwork for a meditation that goes through the book about passivity and lack of agency. So actually you said I kissed him, but in fact, he kissed you. Uh, Yeah. He kissed kissed me, which is such a freaking pre-adolescent point to make. Like that's actually he kissed me, but a lot of the book deals with my, you know, the, a lot of the book deals with my character, me, the narrator, and me as an author is somebody who is coming to terms with the fact that she is a person with really strong sexual desires. Like, I am, I am that person. Like, I am maybe more that way than other people. I don't know. All I can talk about is my own experience. And yeah, towards the end of the book, you're with your best friend, Victoria, and you're talking about, like, being in Utah, and you're like, making jokes about Mormons and their edifices. <laughs> and then you oh say nothing. This son was, uh, something was scary, like a Mormon rapist. <laughs> like, and I'm just yeah. like, oh, wow, there you go. <laughs> there's a metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a sense in which like the metaphors definitely tell a story about how I see the world. Um, but the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of move or dynamic that I pursue over, that I sort of make happen over and over in the book is I'm making someone do something to me. Because I can't handle being responsible for my own sexuality. I need to have it happen to me. So it's not just about being Because he desired. alluded the day before, right? I'd like to plant one on you. And it, right. he says some things. Oh. And then you kind of let him drive you to the thing. To the, right. To the, the thing exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sort of orchestrating that moment of passive reception. And I think that that's a really interesting thing that a lot of women sort of can relate to is this idea that you want it and it's really hard to say you want it. There's a lot of discomfort around that. So somehow, you know, you displace it onto the other person. But of course that immediately becomes politically very complicated um, in terms of um, women and agency and rape fantasies and stuff like that, which is basically the whole rest of the book explores. It's interesting because you say it becomes politically complicated. I wonder, is that, part of the problem in our cultural moment that everything is politicized and so you can't like so like i can't go to you know uh, you, if you go to chick-fil-a you're homophobic or whatever you know like every like every square inch of of everything has these sort of cable news adversarial antagonistic kind of implications so that like y- y- there's not a moment to reflect on something before it's politicized 
Yeah, I think that there's like this, I have a real um, con- interior conflict. You'll be shocked, shocked to hear about this. Like, I think on the one hand... F- full disclosure, uh, we're both fours on the Enneagram for anybody that knows. That. And actually a number of <laughs> listeners know the Enneagram. So. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, I'm not that big a fan of being a four. But anyway... The, yeah, um, that, that's the emblem of being a four. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm learning so much. Uh, but yeah, I think that on the one hand... As somebody who's constantly trying to write about lived experience and really get at what stuff feels like, I think that kind of discourse is problematic for me, that kind of hot take discourse. And I also think it is screwing us up and making us more separated politically. On the other hand, as a diehard far left lefty, I think when we politicize stuff like Chick-fil-A is the example you gave or, you know, any number of politicizations that have happened in the course of the Me Too movement, we're doing this hard work of seeing something from someone else's point of view. And I think it's important. So I don't know, is my answer. Yeah. I I mean, almost, is it like, if we had more points of view, that like the problem is it's it's almost like there's only two points of view. Like, you know, right. they, oh, there's two sides to every story. No, there's sometimes there's three, sometimes there's 18. And sometimes there's one. And sometimes there's one, right? Like, you know, th- th- this is, you know, so where everything, maybe we just don't have a heuristic device that's rich enough. But so I, in that chat, by the way, and you've read a great chapter, which I would, so I know a lot of people that are, that run religious institutions. And I, dare I say, I would recommend this for like a couple's marriage retreat, this book. Wow. I, one of the reasons is you have this great. You should lead by saying the book is quite, it's pretty dirty. And there's a lot of bad language. In yeah. It. Well, the couples would be communicating and probably copulating. And I think that would solve a lot of marital <laughs> problems, talking and <laughs> sex. Right. But you say in, in this chapter, which is how to have sex with your husband in 15 years, which is it's been just such great reading. Um, you say a theory about modern life. Everyone wants everyone else to dominate them. This is because we're so exhausted. We want the other person to do all the work. <laughs> or maybe that's just you. <laughs> maybe you're projecting like crazy, but you know that every once in a while your husband of 15 years likes if you if like if you do the work. And you you have this complicated thing about dominance and and I was I was thinking about because like, I, I I know some professional dominatrixes and I've had a former dominatrix on the show who's a um, a memoirist. And in general, the trend has been okay. It's stereotypical, but guys who feel this sense of that you know, the post enlightenment reality where we're kind of controlling things technologically, bureaucratically, and they want exactly what you're saying, right? They want to lose control. Um, but now, and, and so it's interesting because as women have more managerial responsibility in the workplace and at home, and oftentimes if they go to work, still have all the managerial responsibilities, or most of them they would have at home. So there's this thing that's like, okay, the sort of implicit male dominant role in traditional vanilla sex life. That needs to be ramped up because I'm doing so much and I want, I want to kind of lose more control. Like, I mean, right, exactly. That's just fascinating. I mean, I don't know that I've read anything of late that's been that probing diagnostically about like the Fifty Shades of Grey kind of tendency. And this is, it's just fascinating. Well, I, I think, that, you know, it, first of all, like think about when you go, do you go to an exercise class of any kind? I, I, I exercise frequently and I usually use the Beach Body app which which as you will you would love really? has a whole yoga they have like over 70 yoga workouts so well i'm that's okay so if you go to exercise class of any kind whether it's aerobics or i mean they don't have aerobics anymore whatever they have now 
Zumba or whatever, Orange Theory or yoga, whatever class you go to, occasionally the exercise teacher will ask, what would you guys like to do today, right, to the class? And all the women in the class will say, we don't want to think about it. You just tell us what to do. That's why we're here, right? So that to me is sort of what... um, that's sort of what I'm getting at when I talk about sex, that there's this way in which we're all so overwhelmed and exhausted, we just want someone else to tell us what to do. And I think this is, I'm not the first person to make this observation. You know, certainly a lot of the think pieces that came out after Fifty Shades of Grey came, you know, took off, dealt with exactly what we're talking about. Women are overwhelmed. They have You know, it's not just that women have more responsibility and don't want responsibility. The fact is that women in general, you know, Arlie, I can't remember her full name, but the woman who wrote the second shift really deals with this idea. Women are, as you say, working full time and then doing the full time shift at home as well. And they're just fricking worn out and there's too much agency, too much decision making. It's not that there's something biological in women that is resisting the idea of their own power. It's that they're pooped because they're doing too much because our social structures aren't set up to support women in the workplace. I'm sorry, I'm going off, but it's all interrelated. And so a lot has been talked about about why this new movement of erotica um, that deals with domination is so sought out by women. And what does it mean? By the way, and, could, a, could a worse film have ever I've produced never seen that discussion? It. I mean, I, I've saw parts of it. I, I, I haven't I, read it or seen I, it. I, I, I mean, say. like, I, I see, yeah, it's just, I, I got to, I, it's just very interesting. Well, there's the problem is that, you know, of course, then it becomes this sort of exactly what I just did, where I went into that sort of um, spiraling conversation about women's role and feminism, it becomes this site where we talk about ideas and what it means to be a woman now and all these sort of generalized terms that are just not very interesting or useful. And so it was really interesting. For me, it was really important to go to that experience of feeling overwhelmed and wanting to surrender my agency and actually write about what it felt like and where I came from on a deep emotional level and a lived level. Um, so it was kind of embarrassing to write about that because it's like, oh, so some, you know, middle-aged mom who wants to be dominated is now going to talk about it for a whole bunch of chapters. But that was my subject material and I had to kind of go into it deeply and figure it out. So when you're writing this stuff, how much of these conversations are you having with your husband during the writing of it? Because, I mean, you, you, this was a book, right, where you often show him stuff you read, but not in this book because he was so prominent, right? So you didn't show him yeah. what you were writing? Yeah, it was actually a big problem. So I um, normally we share our work and um, we always have, and it's part of the bond in our marriage. You know, we met at a newspaper together. We've always, our writing lives have always been really intertwined. And then I started writing this book and I showed it to like one or two other people when I was writing it, but it was really secret. I was writing about... The things I'm talking to you about so blithely now, like uh, wanting to be dominated and lack of agency and rage about all I have to take care of at home and at work, these are really scary, scary secret things. And I knew it was really important that I say them as honestly as I could. So yeah, I didn't show it to my husband when I was writing the book. And 
that wasn't a great move because when he finally read the book, you know, because he felt left out. And when he finally read it, you know, it was shocking for him and hard. On the other hand, I think if I'd been showing it to him, I couldn't have written the book. Hmm. I just don't think it would have gotten done. I'm wondering, has your marriage, has the book changed your marriage? I think that the writing of the book changed it. I think the divisiveness of that process changed our marriage and made um, our writing lives more separate. And I actually think for me, in terms of my marriage, I think that that's been a mixed bag. I think for me as a writer, it's been good. It's been hard, but good because I am... I have a stronger sense of being on my own and having an individual voice. And I think it's really important. And I think it's only going to help me grow as a writer. And my marriage is, you know, we'll have to just somehow, as always, figure out a way to incorporate that change into the marriage. Yeah, there's a guy, Lewis Means, he's a blessed memory now, but he taught at Fuller Seminary, he's a psychologist. And he used to say, I've been married seven times to the same woman. Uh-huh, and then he yeah. would say all healthy marriages are death and resurrections, right? That you, you newlyweds and the kids and then different age kids and empty nest and gold, like that these, that, that healthy marriages die and are reborn. And I guess when people often split up, it's because the death and resurrection process can't go forward and it just becomes a death. Right. Right. Because you, those passages definitely happen. And there is, it's interesting to think about in terms of, I mean, I am obviously, I'm an atheist. I'm not a spiritual person, but I that just... That was not obvious to me on reading the book at all. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, not at all. I, oh, I meant obviously in light of our conversation we've been having. But uh, um, that, that still wasn't obvious to me either. <laughs> um, oh, it was obvious to me you were a four in the Enneagram when I read the book. But. <laughs> so I was just talking about marriage and its its challenges with somebody. And she was saying that when she was having a particularly hard time with her husband, but she was saying that when... Um, and she's Jewish and she married a Catholic and she spent a lot of time, um, with a priest before they got married. And, uh, they talked a lot about the idea of marriage itself as faith, like this idea that you just keep having faith in it. And that is sort of almost like for her, she's not a Catholic, but she thinks of the marriage itself as where she puts her faith. And I think that relates in a really interesting way to what, so I've been thinking about that all week. And what you just said, this idea of death and rebirth, what it requires is during the death phase, the faith and the rebirth. And I think marriages end when you can't find that faith that the rebirth is going to come in that natural pattern. You went to Oberlin College and you have this great chapter, A is for acid, an Oberlin abacadarium. And my C is my favorite in it because you say oh C God. is for chlamydia and you say like, <laughs> it was like that scene in Seinfeld where they're wondering what's on your chart and on your <laughs> chart is chlamydia and you're like do I have chlamydia and the doctor's just weird like no that's just our nickname for you at the office yeah. <laughs> like, I read that out loud to my wife in the kitchen last week I was like this is so funny I mean it's weird and funny it's just great I mean like the rawness of that is it's great writing but you end with Z Z is for Zin and you say um, that the class that really mattered to you was popular piety taught by a professor named Grover Zinn, who had a cube-shaped head and a rhetorical <laughs> style generously described as linear. <laughs> Zinn lectured us about the lives of the saints. 
The saints were characters with stories. I found these stories more literary and more immediately relevant to my panicked life than the poems of Williams and Stevens and Jeffers that we were reading in modern American poetry. Poems I could explain. I could and did halt the entire class's discussion of 13 ways of looking at a blackbird with a swift, contemptuous exegesis. But the saints baffled and moved me. They resisted explanation. They were pure feeling, pure tragedy. They were like superheroes. St. Catherine hoist on the spike wheel, Hildegard of Bingen with her visions that terrified her, St. Clair, protege of St. Francis, who practiced extreme poverty and inspired a group of acolytes called Poor Clares, my people. <laughs> As you were writing this and processing this coming to grips with a revisit of your own sexuality and agency, was it like saintly intensity in your own life? Every, yeah. listeners. I've uh, never uh, I was going to say listeners. Before. She's nodding now. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, listen I, to Howard Stern. Stern always like narrates what's going on. No, listeners, the author is nodding. <laughs> I'm, nodding with, I'm nodding with wide eyes because I do think that um, what I went through in this experience of um, depression and sort of return to sexualization and then a meditation on my younger self, all this stuff I went through in my mid forties, which was to put it mildly, a very difficult time. There was a quality of mortification to it. There was something that I was sort of marching myself through. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't realized that when I wrote about those female saints, but there was a way in which there was a stations of the cross feeling there was a, you know, yeah. I, you know, the acolytes, all of that, this feeling of moving through these paces that somehow I was trying to find a more pure way of being. Yes, absolutely. And, and pure in what sense? Like pure, like unadulterated in the sense of like, like more present. Well, the pr idea of presence was completely lost to me at this point. I was so caught up in this depression and reverie about the self. I think pure in the sense of trying to figure out who I really was, which is what every memoirist is trying to do, right? But for me, for whatever reason, in my, in my mid-40s, it became that quest to figure out who I was and how I was moving through the, and to kind of interrogate how I was moving through the world. It became really sad to me and really difficult. Towards the end of the book, you have this, you narrate this exchange you have with your husband, Bruce. And he says, every time we fight, I can see you going down the road to divorce. I can see you weighing it in your mind. It's, it's all over your face. Uh, and you guys talk about your mutual childhoods. And then you tell this, you say um, that at the end of the page, you say, I'm a touchy person, a handholder, a slinger of arms across shoulders, at least when it comes to my gangly husband. But I hadn't touched him all evening. And I think you guys were at that party where you had the circular argument with the woman. About <laughs> no, no, no. It was right. different. We were, a different we were out in New Orleans. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Sorry. It's all mushed together in my mind. Uh, That's okay. Really That's source. how books work. Yeah. So you said, I got, um, but I hadn't touched him all evening or maybe for days. Now I leaned into him. My scarf smelled like wet poodle. I kissed his beautiful mouth so firmly that our lips made a cartoon sound. Smack. Bruce was giving me a choice. He was refusing to let me drift along. Passively being married. Passively being discontented. I would have to choose. It wasn't enough just to be wanted. I would have to want as well if I was mm -hmm. to stay married. 
and it's interesting because from there on, Victoria, who is in the beginning of the book, your best friend, who's a visual artist, and you spend a lot of time with, she reappears. And it seems to me the book becomes about friendship. Or at least not with him and her. I mean, there's this sense in which the midlife gives way to this appreciation of, of friends. And I think also this idea that marriage... Yeah, I think that it does, the book ultimately is this celebration of friendship also with my husband. You're right. And and the way that we we sort of, he and I make friends with the imperfections of our marriage, you know, which every marriage has that like, we're going to be people who need a lot of time apart. And we're going to, you know, we're going to sort of sometimes have times when we're feeling like we're trundling along next to each other and not really integrated with each other. And that's part of it, you know, and that's, that's sort of something we can be comfortable and friendly with. But then also the, the relationship with Victoria is also about my marriage because marriages require these other outlets, you know, and that part of my way of continuing to be married is to be in the world, to be with my friend, to, you know, there's a pragmatism to that. Yeah. Shortly thereafter, you have a chapter where (laughs) you, um, you talk about um, you and Victoria as Dante and, and Virgil, oh God. right? Like, um, uh-huh. and, and you kind of go through Dante and Virgi, Virgil in LA and she had like bought a studio there, right? Like um, a move there. And so it's interesting because you kind of, you have these vignettes about your time together and what you're seeing and feeling, but they're framed by Dante's levels of hell. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what's interesting about that, as I was reading it, I was thinking, um, you start, Limbo is there, right? Where Dante's heroes are. Uh Uh-huh. And Virgil says to Dante, right, I I wish you to know before you travel on that these were sinless and still their merits fail for they lack baptism's grace, which is the door of the faith, of the true faith you were born to. And really what I think he also says there, like, the, their pain, they're not being tortured, but their pain is um, they have desire without hope. Uh-huh, right. The, yes, the hopelessness. Yeah, you know, as I read that section, I was thinking about that passage, Dante, because it seemed like the, the, the self that you're reflecting on and actually talking with back and forth, that was what non-agency created, desire without hope. Hmm, say some more about that. Well, I was just thinking that, like this, you had this sort of great desire for intimacy, right? And sex. I mean, sex. Some people have sex; it's the fruit of intimacy. Other people have it to create intimacy, mm-hmm. and we all do both. I'm sure. Like, it, it, but yeah. like, but it seems like it was to try to create connection, and intimacy, and and it was being frustrated continually. And the ending of the book. It's this beautiful time with you and your your best friend in Utah, and my sense is that there you just seem very hopeful about life. Really, that's interesting. I think that um, you know, I think we seem a little bit like futilitarians in that final chapter. Um, I say that the so I, I've the, never heard that. That's a great word, futilitarians. Um, I think that. There's a, I actually think that chapter is a little bit hopeless. I think that there's a way in which. See, I didn't know you're an atheist. I thought it was hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I don't know. I think that there's a there's a way in which um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where hope lies in that chapter. I don't know if we're still in limbo. But I do say in the chapter that the name of our trip to Spiral Jetty in Utah is keep going. You know, there's this idea that that chapter is about the sort of ineluctable forward movement of life and you keep revisiting the person you used to be and hopefully you hate yourself a little bit less each time you you sort of re-encounter the former self. But there is this quality of like eternal return and we're going to keep going in the same circle, only slightly changed. And maybe that's sort of the place where hope and hope, hopelessness, like maybe it's right in between those two things. Yeah, you say that, <laughs> you talk about like how Vic made what was convinced, you were convinced was a wrong turn. You lost your temper a little. We bickered about the route, drank the last one beer, felt obscurely changed, even though we were still the same. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I wonder though, is that part of hope uh, being able to uh, accept who you are? I mean, like the hopefulness I think I got out of was, you know, Thomas Merton talks about the difference between seeing yourself and being yourself mm-hmm. where, you know, you're projecting kind of this persona and trying to sort of, you're very conscious of the way you're being received versus being a little less conscious and just be like children, small children tend to be themselves, right? Like, you know, they, there's a sort of uh, an inability to do a lot of spin. <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's like, you know, there's a lot of sex in the book, which is about bodies, but one of the most embodied chapters in the book is that one. That's the one where you get the most physical details, where I talk the most about the natural world. You know, Victoria and I are really being in that chapter. I think that's a really good observation that there is a sense in which it moves from almost analysis to, um, you know, a good kind of stupidity. <laughs> and um, But I also think it's like there's this acknowledgement that change isn't going to happen. And we're, I wanted to write a book where I wanted to write a memoir where the main character didn't get better. And that was a really uh, tough challenge. Most memoirs, the person, the narrator transforms for the better. And this book is really an anti-memoir in many ways. It's asking, do we change? Can we change? What happens if I give you a narrator that doesn't get better? But I think that the hope it has to do with me and Vic driving along, like wanting to change, even though we know we won't, you know? I think that like we have that desire for change and that desire for meaning and that desire for feeling and new experience. And we kind of both know on some level, we're not going to deeply change, but we'll keep engaging in this same hopeless project over and over together. Yeah. I mean, is it, it's interesting because my, a friend of mine who's been a mentor too, his name's Paul Zoll, uh, celebrated sort of scholar, uh, and theologian. And it, it you know, recently we just had like the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And he said, you know, wow. Luther had this insight of, you know, his famous huh. insight was simul justus et peccator, right? At the same time, a sinner and saint are justified and sinful. He says, today I would translate that as at the same time, loved and human. And I got that sense to the end of the book, the acceptance of that. Like I can give and receive love and, and be the warts and all uh, the good, bad, and the ugly self, and that these things aren't at odds. I don't think that that was an intentional um, 
point of the book, but I think that that's very much the mood of the book. Yeah, yeah. Of acceptance, but acceptance can have another name, which is resignation. So that... <laughs> So that can go, that goes to the same thing as sort of this place between hope and hopelessness. I'm the most optimistic four in the Enneagram you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to think maybe you're not a four. I don't know. Claire, it, it was, it's been a, a privilege talking with you, uh, j- especially because after reading your book, I, 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 I felt like I knew you, um, but, uh, well, but certain details I've gotten clearly wrong. So I don't, <laughs> but I hope oh, we whatever. can, have, I hope we, um, I hope we can talk more in the future. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Claire for coming on the podcast. Get her new book, Love and Trouble. You won't regret it. And read everything she writes. She's a fantastic writer. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.